Welcome to Vitality Made Simple. The following production is for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you need medical advice, call your doctor. Now, let's go to Vitality Made Simple. Well, welcome to Vitality Made Simple. This is the podcast that's going to help you feel better, look better, and to enjoy better relationships. You know, life is all about relationships. And I have a very relationship-oriented guest today, Karen Hurd. She is a nutritionist. She has an incredible story. Um, her information today is going to help us have a, a longer and more vibrant health span. You know, that means more good years. And that's what we all want. I'm your host, Dr. Debbie Osment, and I sincerely thank you for joining me. Now, Karen, you are quite a fascinating person. Welcome today. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. She has a unique area of expertise. She she knows a lot. I I was I was telling her earlier that I'm so impressed with her ability to make uh, difficult metabolic processes simple. And so she's going to do that for us today. But her unique area of expertise is in the area of how beans impact health and uh, a and stress specifically today is one thing I really wanted to talk about. You're going to love the story of how she became this bean expert. So, so Karen, tell us um, about how you use beans to turn a potentially tragic situation around. Okay. Yes. And it was very tragic. Um, it was back in 1989 and my husband and I had just moved recently into a home. It was a parsonage. My husband had just accepted a pastorate. And so we moved into the parsonage, but they hadn't used it as a parsonage before. They had used it for Sunday school and whatever spaces. And so they were trying to clean it up because it had, you know, needed a little bit of repair and the carpets were bad. And so they put down new to the house carpets, but they weren't new carpets. They were carpets that had been stored in one of the parishioners garage for a long number of years. So, you know, he just had it rolled up and it was just stored. And it's like, hey, I have basically, you know, decent carpet. We just lay it down. And so, you know, now this was all done before my husband and I had arrived, you know, to, to move into this place. And so anyway, we moved in and it was shortly after that there was this outbreak of carpet beetles. So obviously they had been infested in this garage. And so then they were in a larvae farm, you know, and then they, they all hatched out and they, there were not a few hundred of them. There were hundreds of thousands of them. You couldn't kill them fast enough, vacuum them up, smash them. You know, you open up the drawers, they're running out of the drawers. They were everywhere. So I, I, although I hesitated because I didn't want to call an exterminator because I had just recently served in the United States Army. And I, as one of my duties, I was the nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense. What a mouthful. But what it means is that if an enemy attacks you with chemical weapons or nuclear weapons or biological weapons, how are we supposed to defend our troops? What am I supposed to do to protect our troops and that type of? And so I had been training 500 troops on a, for, for years and how to protect themselves. And so I knew the dangers of chemicals. And so I knew that that's what they would use to have to kill these carpet beetles. And so, but it was, we, we were overrun. The bugs were winning. The bugs were on the march. And so they were winning. So I called the local exterminator and they came out and they sprayed. Of course, we left the house, you know, for the hours they sprayed. We left the windows open, you know, all the precautions you take. And we came back home. And then when we came back home, it was shortly after that, that 
all of us felt ill. And my now I had three children at that time. My youngest was Ruth, who was 18 months old. We all felt ill, but she went into seizures. And they weren't just, you know, they were grand mal seizures. So this is where all four limbs are jerking. The eyes are rolled back in the head. And then they're they're frothing at the mouth. And so, of course, we rushed her to the emergency room. She came out of that seizure. They did an x-ray. They said it was double pneumonia. That somehow she contracted double pneumonia, which caused a febrile seizure. But her temperature was only 100 degrees, which is not high. And then so they said, well, you know, just go, you know, we'll put her on antibiotics. And, you know, they kept her until her lungs were clear and then, we went back home and this and all this time I'm thinking, I kept saying, did did this spray? I mean, this is a direct association. We had our house sprayed for bugs. Now, you know, and they nope, that could have nothing to do with it. She would have to ingest it. She'd have to drink the the bug spray, you know, not just breathe it in, you know. And so we went back home and she went into a second, we weren't home very long at all, and she went into a second seizure, and all of us are still sick. And this time the seizure lasted over an hour, an hour and 10 minutes long. And so this is the same grand mal seizure. And see, all of my army training coming back to me, all the symptoms that I taught these troops of what a nerve agent poisoning looked like. And so she went back into seizures. And then the doctor in the emergency room, he was he was quite rattled. I said, I know this is it's got to be associated with the sprain. You have to give her atropine. It's the only thing that will reverse this. Reverse this. This is what we have to give to troops in the field that if they were exposed to a nerve agent. He says, ma'am, we don't even have atropine in the hospital. I couldn't get a hold of it if I had to. He said, all we have is Valium. So he gave her the maximum amounts of Valium until he said, she's still seizing. I can't give her any more Valium because she'll overdose on Valium. And she's going to die anyway, because when you continually seize and seize and her lungs were filling with fluid, because that was what happened before. Anyway, she was going to die. And my husband and I, we stood over her and we joined hands. And my husband prayed, dear God, you gave her to us. You can take her away. And then she stopped seizing. And then the and the physician wheeled around. He had his back to us at that moment. And he said, quick, let's do the spinal tap. Let's do the, the chest x-ray because she's, she, you know, she stops seizing. So, because you can't do any of those procedures when the child is in constant motion, you know, when she's doing this jerking. And so they did, she had double pneumonia again, but she just had double, just got over it a few days ago. And, you know, she didn't have, you know, all of a sudden she has double pneumonia. That's how you die of a nerve agent poisoning is your lungs fill with fluid double pneumonia again. And then so I said, I want to be transferred to St. Louis Children's Hospital. We were living in Granite City, Illinois at the time, and we were at a local hospital there. And I said, I, I need to go to a bigger hospital because this has to do with this, our house being sprayed. They said, ma'am, we don't think that's it, but yes, we'll transfer you to St. Louis Children's Hospital so they can see why your child is having seizures. I arrived at the hospital in St. Louis Children's. They did all of their testing except the one test I asked them. I said, please, please run a cholinesterate level. That will tell us whether she's been poisoned or not. And I am not kidding, Debbie. I, I, There were nine neurologists on her case, the top neurologists in the country working for St. Louis Children's Hospital. And they sat me down in Ruth's hospital room. I will never forget the day. And they all looked at me and they said, Mrs. Hurd, you are barking up the wrong tree. Drop it. She was not poisoned. She had a febrile seizure. Her lungs were filled with fluid because she has pneumonia. She had a febrile seizure. She will be on phenobarbital, which is an anti-seizure drug the rest of her life. And 
forget this, drop it. I said, just do the cholinesterate level. It's a simple little blood draw. You know, nope, there's no need to do that. And sent us home back to the same house, the same, you know, with the bug spray in the carpet and, you know, and we were not home long and I'm holding Ruth on my lap and I look at her eyes and there, her pupils went to pinpoints. That's number one sign of nerve agent poisoning. She had the slight cough. That's a nerve agent poisoning symptom. She had the diarrhea, which is a nerve agent poison. I mean, I taught these to the troops all the time. These are the signs you look for for nerve agent poisoning. The only thing she didn't have this time were the seizures because she was on huge doses of phenobarbital to keep her from seizing. And I thought, she's not seizing. So what I will do when she's getting sleepy, almost going to an unconscious state. So I'm thinking she's going to fall asleep. I will lay her in her crib. I will come back in a few minutes to check her and her lungs will have filled with fluid and she will have suffocated to death. I am not going to do this. I don't care how many nine top neurologists in the country tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. And so what I did is I took Ruth and my other two children by the hand and we marched across the street to the church and we did not return to that house. We lived in the church nursery for several weeks and eventually the church put us in a hotel room. And I started to call every single poison control center in the United States of America, everywhere, any big center. I just would go from poison control and that we don't know what to do. We've never heard of it before, you know. And by this time, I'd already called the, the exterminator and said, what did you spray? It was Dersban 2E. And I said, how does it work? Well, it's a nerve agent. Well, duh, didn't I know that? It's chloropyrifos is the active ingredient. And, and I would tell them all that. And they said, we can't help you, can't help you. And then I finally got a hold of a, of a poison control agency in Dallas, Texas. And they said, you know, we don't know what to tell you. But there's a man named Dr. Sheldon Wagner who works at the university in Corvallis out on the West Coast. And he's a child toxicologist and maybe he can help you. I said, do you have his number? You know, and I'm I'm exhausted by now. By the, uh, You need to know too that I was carrying a child and I was already starting to miscarry the child. And we can never go back and say that the poisoning caused the miscarriage. I will never, never know. But you know what I think in my heart that, you know, that happened, that that poisoning also, I lost that little baby. But anyway, so I'm calling it and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get the same routine. You know, you get the receptions. I'm sorry, he's in a class or he's busy. You know, you can, never can get to the person you want to get to. But no, the reception said, well, no, Dr. Dr. Wagner's available right now. You can speak to him. I'm like, thank you, God. Thank you. And so he got on the phone. I told him the whole story. He said, absolutely, she could have been poisoned. Why hasn't your pediatrician done a cholinesterate level? I said, I've asked, but they refused. He said, give me his number. So I gave him his phone number and he says, and has the carpet been tested? I said, no one would test it. There's a lab in St. Louis that said they could test for the levels of this, this Dersban 2E, the, the insecticide that they used. I said, but they cost $7,000 for them to recalibrate their instruments. And my husband is on a, he's just a brand new pastor in a very tiny church. And we don't have that money. We don't have any money. I mean, we're spending everything mm -hmm. on medical bills. And so we had no money. And he said, I have a lab here at the university. I will test your carpet for free. And he told me what to do. Cut out a piece of the carpet. Just cut it right out of the floor. This is what we did. And send it to me on dry ice because he says it begins to break down this particular chemical, the chloropyrifos. It will begin to break down and it will be losing its potency. And so it had been my, you know, several days since this had happened. Anyway, I did everything he said. Oh, and then he took the pediatrician's number. And I got a call within 30 minutes of hanging up the phone with Dr. Wagner from the pediatrician, Mrs. Hurd. 
I got a call from a Dr. Wagner, who's a child toxicologist. And would you bring Ruth in for a cholinesterate level? Yes. Anyway, so the testing came back from the lab in the university positive that this that it was over a hundred times the normal and safe limit for this particular bug spray that it was super concentrated and it wasn't supposed to be. It was super concentrated. And guess what? The cholinesterate level came back positive. She'd been poisoned. So actually the administrator, the chief administrator of St. Louis Children's Hospital called me on the phone and said, Mrs. Hurd, I have already reprimanded all of those neurologists. They should have listened to you. I am so sorry. Please don't sue the hospital because, you know, we, you know, uh, and I'm not a suing type of person. I mean, I just, you know, it's just, can we get my little girl well? That's all I care about, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, what happened is that then it was proven. Everything came back positive. The Illinois EPA had to come in and they, with air sniffers to say, this is terrible, you know, problem. They had to take the carpet by special waste hauler out, everything that was permeable, curtains, uh, books, anything that could absorb the poison, all of it had to be taken out, thrown away. The whole house had to be scrubbed with super tropical bleach to disinfect, not disinfect it, but to, to kill the, the to, to deactivate the chloropyrifos. Anyway, it was a mess. But in the meantime, so now I have a very sick little girl. And so now the medical society is on board and they're saying, yes, we have a problem. Her liver is compromised. Her immune system is compromised. And so, and I said, so what do we do? And they said, there's nothing to be done. There's, there's nothing to be done that we can, we can't, there's, there's no medication to give. There's no surgical procedure to do. There's nothing that can be done. Her liver enzymes are so elevated. Her liver is going to be failing very soon and she will die of liver failure because she can't clear all this poison. And, and, and I said, please, is there anybody anywhere in the United States? So I conferred with specialists in Dallas and in Chicago and in St. Louis, and they all had the same sad prognosis. She's going to die you need to just recognize the fact that there's nothing that can be done. And I will never forget the day I sat in that specialist office in St. Louis. And he said, Mrs. Hurd, no, the medical society, we have never watched a person die of chloropyrifos poisoning, of nerve agent poisoning before, and to watch the liver deteriorate due to that poisoning. And so I'd like your permission to do liver biopsies on Ruth, you know, oh. on a regular basis to monitor the destruction of her liver. And I said, they're very painful, aren't they? Well, yes, they are. But we'll, you know, give her, you know, sedatives. So she, I said, I picked up Ruth. I said, I will oh. no longer be seeing you, sir. And I left his office and never returned. And so then it's, where do I go? Who do I turn to? No one in the medical profession. I mean, I'm talking to the top people in the country. Nobody had an answer. What do I do? So I went home and I said to my husband, Steve, you need to take care of the children. We had three children. I said, you're just going to have to watch them because I'm going to the University of Washington or Washington University, which is in downtown St. Louis. It's a medical school. And I said, I'm just going to go to the library because nobody can help me in the medical field. I'm going to at least study in the library. They'll have stuff I can read and maybe I can figure out something. I didn't know if there was anything to figure out, but who, what? And all I have is what I can buy at the grocery store. You know, what am I going to do? But it, this was the time of microfish. So there's nothing like, you know, we can type in, you know, and ser search on your browser for anything. So I told the librarian was it, what I was about. I said, you know, I have no medical degree. I don't, you know, but I'm going to learn this language very quickly. Medical ease is what I call it, you know, and I will learn this and, and I need to know everything about liver 
detoxification. You know, I need to know everything there is to know about, you know, chlorpyrifos, nerve agent poisoning. So she helped me gather all the microfish together. And then I started reading all these articles, which one article would refer to another. You've seen these scientific articles at the bottom. They have a long list of references. And then I would look up those references. And I I just, and I spent hours and days. And then I learned everything from snake oil remedies to the newest research that the National Institutes of Health were doing. I learned everything. And I finally came to the conclusion of, and I learned a lot about what's called the enterohepatic recirculation, about how we recycle, recycle toxins and we recycle bile and the toxins are in the bile. I learned, that's where I learned that. And I thought if I could just get that to be excreted out of her body and not let it recycle, then maybe we could get all of that chlorpyrifos gone, you know, and it has a half-life and everything, but you still half-life meaning only half of it's gone, you know, the right. potency of half of it. And so I came up with a diet with and actually, and she wasn't eating at that point. She was so sick. She wasn't even eating. All she would do was nurse. And that would just be a little bit of time, you know, then she was a little about 20 months old now. And so, so I put it in a little oral syringe and I would force her to eat the soluble fiber or drink it. You know, I put it in water. And then the things that I thought that she needed based on, just based on my reading, I hadn't anything else. I have a bachelor degree at that point in Spanish and a minor in German. You know, this is not necessarily scientific field. It's not at all. And I have a little bit of training I had in the army in chemical warfare, you know? And so it's like, okay, this is the only, they're telling me she's going to die anyway. And none of this is just food. It's, basically, it's just soluble fiber, you know, and some nutrients and that's it. So I could buy that at the store, which I did. And so I would put that in her mouth and she would fight me, you know, cause I'm forcing her to drink this. I call it the green dragon. Cause it was green by the time I was done this color of it, because I had some alfalfa in there too. And anyway, so she started to get better. She started to get better. And then as she got better and better than the, the physicians that we were, I, then I didn't, I didn't ever take her back to the one that said, I want to do liver biopsies, but she had other physicians. We had a lot of physicians and they said, she's getting better. And it's just like, Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Her liver enzymes coming down, everything. She got well. She got well. And so at that point, you know, I was just delighted that my daughter was well. But then I started to receive phone calls. Karen, I heard that you're, I read the article, the newspaper, little girl supposed to die lives. I said, what article? What newspaper? Well, the St. Louis Globe Democrat. I said, well, nobody's called me or talked to me or anything. I mean, I never had anybody interview me or anything. They said, yeah, there's an article in the paper about it. So I actually had to go and look it up, you know, and say, oh, there is an article. How? And and they had my name in it. And somehow they got my name, I guess, everywhere. You can find where people are. And people are starting to call me and saying, Karen, if I have a daughter. I have a son, my husband, my my dad. They're sick and no one's been able to help them. And you were able to solve your daughter's problems. Maybe you can help. And I said, I... I am not a doctor. I am not a nurse. I don't, you know, I, I don't know how to do, you know, I'm not a physician, nothing, you know? And they said, we don't care. And I said, and I, they would tell me such terrible, heartbreaking stories, you know? And, and then I would say, well, I could go down to the Washington University Library and read about it. And then I can make a suggestion, but the only tools at my hand are what you can buy in a grocery store. I mean, I don't have medications. I don't have shots. I don't have anything. They said, we don't care. And so then I would start to tell these people, I said, and you can't hold me liable because I don't, you know, and all you're doing is food anyway, you know? So mm-hmm. these people started to get better. 
And then I got a call from one um, from uh, Southwestern Bell Telephone, who was occupying one bell tower at that time in downtown St. Louis as the highest skyscraper. And they said, we have had dozens and dozens of employees demand that we have you come and to be a brown bag speaker. You know, it's a lunch. They get their lunch and they have a speaker mm-hmm. come up, talk about whatever. And they want you to come and talk about health. And so we would pack that auditorium and held 300 people and we would pack that auditorium and I would go week after week. Then the St. Louis Catholic Parish asked if I'd start teaching the parents and, and you know, of the, of the school children about nutrition. And then Drury Inns called me and said, and they have a lot of Drury Inns in the St. Louis area. We want you to start doing brown bag. And finally, the University of Missouri called me and said, we'd like you to begin teaching nutrition classes. And I said, I don't have any credentials. They said, we know, get them. And so then I enrolled and, you know, got all my my uh, certification as a nutritionist. And then and then I opened an official practice. And then that's that's how it all started 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, when you said Ruth, I just smiled because I dealt with Ruth listeners to to schedule this with Karen. And so to think this miracle person Oh my goodness. And it's so amazing, Karen, how God uniquely um, prepared you with your army training. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't have known Debbie without that, that, without that training from the army, I would have never known to say, this is the bug spray. This is a nerve agent. And we have to pursue this. I would have just, Ruth would have just died. And we would have said, oh, well, she had pneumonia and she died of a febrile seizure with them. Pneumonia. Yeah, you would have just accepted it. I mean, I oh my goodness, I would have. And so this is God's, God's, God's work in my life and in Ruth's life. And yes, that Ruth you're talking to. Anybody ever deals with with my practice? They'll say I talk to Ruth. That is the Ruth, and I call her the girl who lived. Yes, the yes. Girl who lived. No, that story is just beyond incredible. And also, it tells me what we talk about a lot on Vitality Made Simple is that, you know, you're your own best doctor. You have to be your own best doctor. And, you know, it's just the way it is now. And it's really the way, you know, that for centuries, I mean, God has given us so much medicine in food and herbs and plants that um, a lot of knowledge that people used to have. And, and now we you know, we've given it up, but we're not giving it up. You know, you're teaching us um, how to, to, to detox correctly. I mean, am I, that's the, that's the, that's the area we're headed down today is detox um, and specifically in the area of stress. So, so Karen, you used beans, soluble fiber. Uh, I guess there were other things in the green dragon, But uh, this was so fascinating when I first heard you because, you know, most people avoid beans when they have bloating gas and, you know, there's been a jillion jokes. In fact, I've had a few lunches with principals in junior high for telling those jokes and about (laughs) about gas. And um, so so you're going to give us an incredible perspective today. Boy, you know, buckle your seatbelts, listeners, this this is super duper. So, so start telling us how beans help reduce stress. We live in a stressed out world. We need this information, Karen. Yes. When we're under stress, we have to make stress hormones to deal with it. That's just the way we're wired. And so the stress hormones are called epinephrine and norepinephrine. We know them collectively under the name of adrenaline. 
And so we will produce adrenaline. We all know that when you have to get something done and you're exhausted, all of a sudden you have this rush of energy because you got a boss yelling at you or you have a time or whatever, and you rise to the occasion. How were you able to rise to the occasion? Through adrenaline. And people rely on adrenaline all the time. They get up in the morning, they're tired, they have to face work and whatever it is. And what do they do? The first thing they do is they have a cup of coffee. What does coffee do? Because coffee has caffeine. Caffeine stimulates the production of adrenaline. So then we have the get up and go. I have energy. I can do this. I can conquer the world hormone. Running on adrenaline feels great until you run out. And then you're so tired. You just feel like your legs have been cut out from underneath you. You're just, ah. and then over a long-term chronic period, it develops into depression and then we have fibromyalgia, and then we get all kinds of different arthritic inflammatory states. And it's all because we've exhausted a gland that's constantly have to pumping out adrenaline for you. That is a stress response. And so whether it's financial stress or emotional stress, stress at work, whatever it is, you're going to have the adrenaline response. So what happens when this hormone is made? Well, it gives you the energy and the clear thinking ability, everything that you wanted it to do. But then what happens to it? Is it used up? No, it's not used up because the unique property with a hormone is it triggers a receptor site on a cell to do the action, make you stronger, make you brighter, smarter, you know, to do the action that is needed. And then when it releases the receptor site, the hormone is not used up. It's still intact. So then it can go to the next cell and the next receptor site and stimulate that cell and on and on and on. Now, your liver is responsible for clearing all hormones out of your body. All hormones, whether they're female hormones, male hormones, or adrenaline, adrenaline is a hormone made out of those two, epinephrine and norepinephrine, that is cleared from your bloodstream by the liver. How much is cleared? Well, if you have a whole lot of adrenaline because you're all worked up about whatever you're worked up about, then you're going to be clearing more adrenaline. The liver will pull that adrenaline out of the bloodstream. Okay, now what does it do with it? Because this is an active molecule that will cause the liver to work faster and do more. It is always stimulating a reaction. So the liver says, well, we got to get it, throw it outside of the body. What is the liver's exit outside the body? Can the liver send that adrenaline down to the kidneys and you pee it out? Ah, no, that doesn't work. You know, can it just sort of come out through your pores and your skin? and just evaporate into the air. No, that doesn't work either. The liver has to put it into something that's fat soluble, number one, because your hormones are made out of fats and it cannot mix with water. That's why they can't be excreted through the kidneys because kidneys only deal with water soluble stuff. But the fats are making up, the oils are what's making up your hormones. And so they have to be processed by the liver. And the liver says, ah, I have this idea. I make this digestive fluid bile that we use to break down fats because bile is made out of fat, which is very important. Bile is made out of fat and we use fat to digest fats. Fats can only be digested by other fats. It's through a process called emulsification. And so the liver says, I can take this fatty hormone, this hormone made out of fats, I can put it into the fat carrier bile, which I'm making anyway to digest the food that she's eating and send that down to the gastrointestinal tract. And it does, it goes via the gallbladder and then the gallbladder releases this bile into your gastrointestinal tract right here. I'm pointing here. It says a duodenum. This is the first part of the small colon. And then there's those hormones. And then 
they have a chance of exiting the body because they'll travel through the small colon, through the large colon, and go into the toilet in the form of a bowel movement. Hooray, we throw the nasty hormones away. But there's a catch. We recycle bile right at the end of the small colon, right where it's entering the large colon. That's where all fats are absorbed. Bile is a fat. So if we absorb bile, at 95%, and we do, we absorb our bile at 95%. Does that mean we're absorbing those that adrenaline and those other hormones, whatever the waste product is, are we absorbing that back into the bloodstream? What we just got rid of out of the bloodstream, is it going back into the bloodstream? It is at 95%. So 95% of your stress hormones are recycling. And so guess what happened in that time that this bile was down in the gastrointestinal tract? It's outside the bloodstream now. It's down the gastrointestinal tract. Well, you made more stress hormones because you're still stressed out. So you made even new more, more stress hormones. So now the liver has to clean out the new hormones plus the old hormones. And that goes into the bile fluid. And so now your bile has more of the hormones. The concentration grows and grows in your bile fluids. And then when that hat hits your gut, when it hits that duodenum, you need to understand that that is what's creating the gas. It's not beans that create gas. It's hormones that create gas. We have two processes to digest food. The first one is where we go through a digestive process where we use digestive enzymes to break down the food into small particles so that it can be absorbed through these little hair-like projections off the intestinal wall called, called villi. And then all of those nutrients go through the villi and into the bloodstream and nourish you. We have to be able to break our food molecules in little pieces to be able to absorb them. Our digestive enzymes do that. That is the primary and the preferred way to digest food. There is a second way to digest food. It's called fermentation. We can ferment the foods. It's just like taking grapes and making them into wine, taking cabbage and turning it into sauerkraut. That's a fermentation process. I want you to think about those two fermentation processes I just mentioned, grapes and cabbage, one going into wine, one going into to sauerkraut. If anybody's ever done either one of those processes, there is gas release and a very distinctive odor that is produced. You can smell a winery from miles away. And boy, if you've never made sauerkraut, oh, you can smell it when you lift that lid, you know, to check how they're doing, stir it up a little bit. Woo! You know, it smells. It's because of the gas, because that's how we smell things is through gas. Fermentation always, not sometimes, always creates a byproduct of gas. So digestive enzymes don't. Fermentation does. Well, so what's triggering the process of fermentation? Because the body's preferred method of digesting food is through the digestive process of digestive enzymes. So how did we switch over into the fermentation mode? There's only one thing that moves us into fermentation mode. There's a pathway to turn it. It's called the fermentation pathway. And you have to have a trigger. And the trigger is a hormone. A hormone triggers the process of fermentation. So if you have a lot of hormones, and remember I told you those hormones don't lose their, their vitality. They're going to trigger reactions wherever they go, whether they're in the bloodstream, whether they're in the liver, whether they're in the bile and the gut, they are going to come into contact with cells and they are going to trigger a reaction. That's their job. And so they trigger the reaction in your gut and you have fermentation. And when you have fermentation, you have gas. If the gas is all up here in your duodenum, you will burp it up. If it's further down in the gastrointestinal tract, it has to come out the other way. We call it flatulence. And 
when you ferment something, you're coming up with something called methane gas CH4 and it's stinky. There you go. That's it. So it's hormones that create gas. So people say, if I eat beans, I have gas. And I, my question is, well, you're not eating beans now, are you? And they said, are you kidding? They cause gas. So I say, so you have gas now and you're not eating beans because you say they cause gas. So what's causing your gas? Not eating beans. What's causing your gas? Something besides beans is causing your gas. Yes, it's the hormones. And how do you get rid of hormones? You have to find something that will bind with this bile and not let it be reabsorbed into the bloodstream at 95%. You have to get it bound up with something that has two qualities, two basic qualities. One, it has to be able to bind with bile and not become unbound so that we have a permanent bonding with it. And two, whatever that substance is cannot cross the intestinal barrier. It has to, the only way that it can get out of the body is to be thrown out in the toilet is in form of a bowel movement. There is something that has those, both those qualities. The name of it is soluble fiber. Soluble fiber is found in beans, pinto beans, navy beans, lentils, black beans, garbanzo beans, which are also called chickpeas red beans. It's the little hard things that we soak and we boil. Those are what these beans are. It is not a peanut. It is not a soybean. A lot of people think, oh, soybeans. No, soybeans don't. They have a tiny bit of soluble fiber, mostly oil. And so your beans have the soluble fiber. Soluble fiber is able, it's a, it's like a net. It, it's I called it a chemical, I said a chemical bomb before it'd be very strict for those chemists that might be listening to this. It's actually a polysaccharide net. It captures the micelle. The micelle is the, the molecule of bile that's made out of a fat. It's like it catches it in this net that's got such a fine mesh that that big oil molecule cannot get out of the net. And it's forever trapped in there. And so the bile, as I say, the bile, and they meet, by the way, the bile is released right up here in your duodenum. And that's where you're swallowing these beans that have the soluble fiber. They meet in the duodenum and they see each other from across the crowded duodenum, and they rush into each other's arms, and they get married. And there is some music here, Karen, in the background. Oh, yeah. You know, somebody needs to play. And then so they are married, and there is no such word as divorce. They will never come unbound. And so they travel through the jejunum, which is the next part of the small intestine, into the ileum, the third part of the small intestine. They reach the ileocecal valve where they're going to cross into large colon, but just on the inside, this part before you get to the outer part. So it's on the, 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 the near side of your abdomen, the center towards the center. That's where we absorb fats. And the fats say, you know, it's been really nice being married to you. I love you. I love you, soluble fiber and all that, you know, and I love us getting married up there in the duodenum. But, you know, this is where I absorb. This is where I take out. You know, I'm I'm going to disentangle from you now because I have got to go, you know, back into the bloodstream because I'm a fat and fats are absorbed here. This is what I do. And the soluble fiber says, listen, mister, I married you and there is no such word as divorce. I'm going into the toilet and you're coming with me. And, and so together, they cross through the ileocecal valve, they go up the trans, uh, the uh, ascending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, sigmoid colon, and out in the toilet in the form of a bowel movement. And you just threw away that bile and you threw away those hormones that are in that bile. 
And so then your hormonal levels, and when they recycle always, your hormonal levels go up. We're always worried about cancer, you know, and these estrogen fed and these progesterone fed cancers. Why are you producing so many hormones? It's not so much that you, you, you do produce a lot of them, but at the same time, you're recycling them all the time at 95%. So you have these large amounts of estrogen that's always triggering estrogen receptor sites to create these tumors that grow. Well, why don't you just throw away the estrogen? And then you wouldn't have these tumors that grow. That's but you have to eat soluble fiber to do it. Well, and and you know, so much of the current research is that cancer is a fermentation problem. So, you know, that all that all goes together. So, okay, so what do you recommend people do? Like what kind of protocol, Karen? Number one, tell us how you cook your beans, what you do, and then tell us. The protocol. I would I would think it's a start low, go slow, uh, gets you know to get started. But you know what do you do? Okay. Well, first of all, we can talk about how to cook beans, and you need to know that the more a bean is cooked, the more that it's processed. And this goes against what we've been told for so long. You know, the less processing, the better. But the more a bean is cooked, the more soluble fiber it has. It's because soluble fiber comes from the breaking down. The, the structure of insoluble fiber, insoluble fiber, think of the strings and celery, you know, and like the, the stuff you see when you eat a lot of carrots or something and you see the carrots in your stool and they're saying, oh, I'm not digesting my food. If you didn't chew it up with your teeth, how do you think insoluble fiber is going to get broken down? There's not a digestive enzyme that's going to break this down. You have to mash it, cook it, heat it. You got to break these molecules apart. And to do that, you cooking it. So the more it's cooked, the more soluble fiber you have. So if you have a, like an Instapot or, you know, it's a pressure cooker is basically what that is. That will give you more soluble fiber in those beans than if you do this on an open kettle on the stove. Now you can certainly do an open kettle on the stove because that's, you know, maybe that's all you have and that's fine. You're still going to get a lot of soluble fiber, but you're going to get even more if you do it in a pressure cooker. And your most ones, believe it or not, are your canned beans because those undergo the most processing, like a cannery, a bean cannery. Those are all using high, high pressure cooker. I mean, it makes our home pressure cookers look like little dinky things, you know. And so they have the most soluble fiber. So any of those ways you want. But one way a lot of people will say, well, I want to sprout my beans. I'm going to sprout my mung beans, you know. And when you sprout a mung bean, then the soluble fiber in that hard bean turns to insoluble fiber. That's the plant. That's the sprout that comes out of the bean because it can go either direction, soluble fiber to insoluble fiber, insoluble fiber to soluble fiber. So if you sprout a bean, you can eat sprouted beans, but they are now vegetables. They are not a legume with the soluble fiber content that we need to clear out the bile. It's a nice vegetable. That's great. Adds bulk to your stool. Wonderful. They're good for you. Wonderful. But it's not going to do anything for clearing bile. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, and and I've heard you talk about how when people are stressed, if they'll go eat some beans, and, and I want to hear the protocol, but to think that canned beans are really a great resource has to help people have less stress hearing about this. It's, it is a great resource, you know, and now if they're in a sugary sauce, take the time to dump it in a calendar and rinse off the sugary sauce. You know, like if you buy the baked beans, you know, that are in brown sugar and whatever else they add. It rinse off the sugary sauce because the sugar is not helping us, but you still have the bean, you know, say, well, they're still sweet. No, they're not sweet. Like in the sugary sauce, you know, your Navy beans or what you usually have in baked beans. As far as the amounts, 
If you already have a gas problem, start slowly. Just start with a tablespoon and do that three times a day. And you'll say, well, that didn't bother me. I'm fine. Well, then do two tablespoons because how are you going to get rid of that gas? It's beans that take the gas away. And they'll say, but Karen, I'm convinced. And I know that when I eat beans, I do have more gas. You already have the gas, but beans are easily fermented because they're a carbohydrate. That's what we mostly What's me mostly ferment is carbohydrates. And so because a bean is a carbohydrate, then it's going to ferment because there's other parts of bean besides the soluble fiber. We have other carbohydrates in there and fibers are called carbohydrates. I wish they never would have done that at the FDA, but they did. Someday maybe I can get that rule changed. <laughs> but if anybody can, if anybody can do it, you yeah, can I've actually it. thought about that. It's a state level. That's something I could work on really easy. It's federal level. Then I got to get into Congress to be able to do that. But right now we just stay in the state legislature. But Anyway, so it, the carbohydrates are what are fermented. And so because you're eating the bean, the bean is still being fermented, but you would have fermented, it wouldn't matter. You could add a piece of bread, you could add whatever, and it's still going to ferment. So what we, on those people that are really bad with the gas, and I'll just say, you know what, buy some psyllium. Psyllium is the husk to the plantago seed. It is all soluble fiber. It is very effective and it cannot be fermented. There's no other, there's no carbohydrates. There's no calories there. So, and it will, it will, you won't get the gas from it, but you'll get the soluble fiber. So you just start slowly and you say, I'm good with that. Then go work up until you can eat a half a cup at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, a half a cup. And these are cooked beans, not, you know, they're dry because when they're dry and they're soaked, they swell up and they get bigger and they're three times as much as they were in the beginning. No cooked, you know, right, right out of the can, a half a cup, put a half a cup of beans on your plate. So that's not too much. I mean, that's doable. You do that three times a day. That, that's great. And then if you're under stress, then you would want to just let me eat a tablespoon of beans every 20 minutes that I think about it, because you will notice immediately your stress levels go because you're not recycling this bile. And I should tell you this, too, because most people think that, you know, bile is recycled, you know, maybe once a day. No, it's it's it depends upon the person's motility, how fast things are moving through your gastrointestinal tract. But it can be from 20 to 70 times a day you're recycling this bile. So if you can interrupt this, you know, every time, you know, then you're basically carrying out 100% of these recycling hormones and they never recycle them. So you're not getting that extra load of hormones in your bloodstream because when they come back in the bloodstream, they're free and loose again. Let's cause anxiety. Too many hormones cause anxiety. Too little hormones cause depression. I'm specifically talking about adrenaline right now. If you have too much adrenaline, too much epinephrine and norepinephrine, you will have panic, anxiety, generalized anxiety, you know, where you're like, I can't stand the crowd. It's driving me crazy. All the noise. Ah, you know, it's just, I'm overwhelmed. I just got to, you know, take a deep breath, take a deep breath, you know, all that. That's too much adrenaline. And then the depression, I'm just so tired. I don't care about living anymore. I'm just, there's nothing to me. I just want to lie in bed. That's too little. Well, how did you get too little? Because you've exhausted your adrenals from constantly calling for more because of either your high stress, you know, from your job or whatever you're going through, or because you're eating sugar, you're drinking caffeine, those things stimulate adrenaline. So does wearing perfume and fragrance. And we're around that all the time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's so many things that stimulate adrenaline production and, and hormones. There's other hormones besides adrenaline that they stimulate. And then we just got to avoid those as much as possible and then eat, eat our beans or our psyllium. What's, what's so exciting about this is that people can do their own experiment, their own in of one. So, you know, we can, we can try it and there's no harm. 
I mean, if you're wondering about gas, you might stay away from people a little bit just to see how it goes. But um, it, it's, you know, it's food. It, it's food that our ancestors have lived on for years. I know it's what kept my my grandmother alive. She um, just was, you know, very poor at certain times in her life. So it was it was beans. She made the best beans in the world because she was so experienced at cooking beans. And um, so so it's logical, Karen. It's mm-hmm. totally logical. A lot of people say, well, so if I just add beans to my life, is that all that I have to do? It's like, that's one of the things. But we have to get rid of these other things that are causing the stimulation. Please don't eat sweets. Please don't use perfumes and fragrances. Please don't use the essential oils because that's just another perfume and fragrance. It doesn't matter if it's natural or not. It's still the tiny little molecules that are going to stimulate hormonal production. Don't do don't do bad things for yourself. You know, don't eat the chocolate. People say, well, dark chocolate's good for you. It has all these, you know, antioxidants. Well, it, but it comes with caffeine. So it's just like, because it has a little bit of good, you know, you could say poison ivy is good for you because it has a lot of antioxidants. I do not recommend you eat poison ivy. I want to make that very clear. Do not eat poison ivy. You will get very sick. Okay. (laughs) But I mean, it has antioxidants. So why shouldn't we have it? So we have to be careful, you know, to say, because it has some antioxidants that we can overlook the bad things in it. So that's what dark chocolate is. So bad. Now, what other um, chemicals? does this soluble fiber clean out anything that is fat soluble anything that's fat soluble so it cleans out perfumes fragrances essential oils it cleans out lacquers uh, so like if you're refinishing your house you know and you've got paints and you know you put a stain down on the floor and then polyurethane on top of that you know all those smells or new carpet smell those those are all types of different they're called volatile organics you know that that can you can breathe in and they can stimulate things and so that soluble fiber clears all those things and all your hormones and it is hormones that are making most of our problems in our body it's hormones that cause mutations because they cross through the cell wall it's called the plasma membrane And they are then carried right through a transcription factor. It's another molecule that attaches to it and travels right to the nuclear envelope. And that's another little inside hidden chamber inside every cell. We have a nuclear envelope. And what is hidden inside the nuclear envelope? A full copy of your DNA, a 100% full copy of your DNA. And it gets in there, these little tiny molecules. These are hormones. And then they will, they attach onto they cross through the nuclear envelope by diffusion. They don't even need, normally to get into a cell or into the nuclear envelope, you have to have a pore. You have to have a gateway, a door. And you knock on the door and say, can I come in? Okay, yeah, we allow you in. Or no, we don't allow you in. We don't like you, you know? And there's different doorways. And so with a hormone, they're so tiny that they just diffuse, which means they just walk through the wall. It's just like a ghost. They just walk through a wall. And then they can get right into the 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 cytoplasm, which is the inside of the cell. And then they can go right over to the nuclear envelope, and they just cross through that that membrane, just walk through the wall without going through a pore or the doorway. And then they attach to your DNA. And what happens when they attach to your DNA? It swaps out. You have these nucleotides. They're they're what are make up our DNA, and it swaps them out and puts them in different order. And some of it, it's all random. If it lands on a place that doesn't really make any difference, no problem. But what if it lands on where the P53 gene is made? P53 
P53 gene is our number one defense against cancer. It's just like, okay. And then once you damage the DNA, the next cell that is made from that cell, because all cells have a cell life, like the cells in your gastrointestinal tract that line your gastrointestinal tract, they live for three days. Every three days, you have a new gastrointestinal tract linings. Or bone cells live for two years. You know, it depends. Your endocrine system cells, cells that produce hormones, they live for three months. So every cell has a certain lifespan. And then when it dies off, it's replaced with a cell that's replicated from the dying cell. Well, what's it replicated from? The DNA, the damaged DNA, the mutated DNA from all this hormonal waste that we just let ride through over and over and over. Just It's just our bodies are rife with all these excessive amount of hormones because we don't eat soluble fiber anymore. It used to be, used to be everybody had beans. Right. It was on everybody. I mean, a hundred years ago, you had beans three times a day. Nobody thought about it. Now somebody says beans, oh, that sounds nasty. I only have that. You know, if I'm having a, you know, we're at a football game or something and I'm having hot dogs and baked beans or something, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we need to eat them three times a day, everybody. No. And, and thanks to you, we're certainly eating them more. We're putting black beans on our salads and um, mm. just, you know, all kinds of things. So, in closing, uh, this is just fascinating. Um, and I know our, I'll have a lot of comments because you've given us a, a very different perspective. And and I appreciate your time and your generosity. Uh, how can people find you, Karen? Um, you can go to just KarenHerd.com. That's my web, website. It's just my name, Karen, K-A-R-E-N, traditional spelling. Herd is H-U-R-D. So KarenHerd.com. And then I'll take you to my site and then I have all these courses and you can enroll in a course. And if you enroll in a course, you need to understand then I'm with you forever. Well, I mean, someday I will die too, but hopefully that'll be at 120. Did you know mankind can live to 120 years? That should be another podcast for another day. I should talk about that. But anyway. That'd be fun. But but then Ruth, everybody's heard Ruth's story today. Ruth is will be taking over my business someday when I passed on at 120. She'll be in her 90s by then, but then she'll still have you know another 30 years and she'll have one of her kids running it. But uh-huh. anyway, but if you enroll in one of your my courses, then you have unlimited email contact with me that doesn't cost you. So you watch the course and say, Oh, now I understand about my gallbladder or about, you know, my arthritis, whatever you took the course on diabetes. I have 17 different courses. And then you can email me with questions or like, ah, I'm on this medication. What should I do? You know, whatever. And then we will answer you back and you can email me as many times as you want. And that's just part of, it's a one-time cost. So it's not that expensive. The course is $250 unless you get the, you know, so. Yeah. I think I think it's it's incredible how you know how fast would people spend that money if they're if they're really sick sick sick. I mean, that's I, one you visit. Went to the doctor's office one time. It's more than two hundred fifty dollars just to go in. You know, to be seen once. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I think Karen, it's very much uh, the the trend of decentralized health where people can get educated and make decisions on their own. I'm I'm very much in favor of empowering people to take hold of their own health span, their own vitality span, and and to be able to uh, to do things at home and to ask their doctor intelligent questions and to um, increase their, you know, physician's outcomes if necessary uh, when they're having to have some kind of procedure. So I just, this information is, is incredible. Um, I can't thank you enough. And I do want to, I want to continue the conversation about living 
living with a with a good health span. I had a a patient who uh, literally her her goal was to live to be a hundred. I called her Amazing Amy, and she was just darling. And uh, she lived to be she had a hundred good years and two bad days. And literally, she said, "Okay, Lord, I'm ready to come home." And it was just so inspiring because that's what we want. We want this long and vibrant health span. Yes. So yes. thank you, Karen. And thank you, listeners. Thank you all for uh, subscribing and for sharing. Uh, Vitality Made Simple is now in um, oh, 103 countries. And I think we're at uh, 28 or 2900 cities. I, I should have looked, but I didn't. Um, and that's because of you. And please uh, join me on Instagram. We have a lot of fun there. And I'll we'll be putting um, Karen's interview on YouTube soon. So share it with your friends. Uh, Keep listening, keep subscribing and blessings until next time.